Howdy, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the absolute pleasure of talking with Reverend George Grant. We talked today about his book that's now on Canon Plus in audio. You can also order it from canonpress.com, Killer Angel, a biography of Planned Parenthood's Margaret Sanger. I cannot recommend this little biography enough. Head to mycanonplus.com and you can find all kinds of content from George Grant. And I can promise you, you will see more and more of Dr. Grant's books coming into Canon Plus as well as canonpress.com as the year goes on. Without further ado, meet Reverend George Grant. Now welcoming on a very special guest, his first time. Please welcome Mr. George Grant. Thank you so much for being on Canon Calls. Oh, it's my great privilege. Good to good to see you. Good to talk to you. I trust everything over there in Tennessee is 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 looking up. Everything's good. Yeah, everything is great. You know, this is uh, it's a hot summer, but <sighs> it's uh, a rich, rich time for the church, and so. Uh, we're having a, having a blast. Awesome. So that's one thing I wanted to talk to you about. I wanted we're to uh, today we're talking about your book Killer Angel, which uh, in its in its newest uh, form is now out through Canon Press. It, the audio is on Canon Plus that people can go find uh, as well as everywhere you get your audio books. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how the uh, how your interest into Margaret Sanger's life started. What was, uh, where were you or what were you doing? What were you interested in? Well, actually I was in high school, uh, okay. in 1972, I was in high school in Dallas, Texas, and there was, um, a battle making its way through the courts, uh, that was, um, uh, a lawsuit brought by a young University of Texas lawyer, uh, uh, Sarah Weddington, okay. against the district attorney of our city. Uh, his name was Henry Wade on behalf of uh, Jane Rowe, uh, who uh, wound up having having a child but had tried to get an abortion uh, in violation of Texas state law. At any rate, uh, some buddies and I heard about this. I thought it sounded fascinating. I was a brand new Christian, and I decided to go to a press conference where Henry Wade was speaking in downtown Dallas on the courthouse steps. And I heard him lay out this case uh, that would soon be heard by the Supreme Court called Roe v. Wade. And I was... Uh, I was fascinated. I knew nothing at all about the pro-life movement, uh, but it sounded to me from his uh, bare bones description that this gospel that I was now absolutely enthralled with was at the heart of the life issue. And so I began to study the scriptures and I began to try and learn everything that I could about uh, the life issues and about the abortion movement, and that's when I 
uh, ran across the name Margaret Sanger over and over and over again. I began to read about Planned Parenthood. I visited several Planned Parenthoods uh, there uh, in uh, uh, First Dallas, and then when I went off to college in Houston, and that was the start of my interest. I was already very interested in political science. I was a political science major in college, and it seemed to me that at the beginning of the 20th century, there, were, there was a kind of convergence of a whole host of radical ideas that uh, had given birth to the kind of politics that we saw emerging in the 1960s and 70s, uh, the radical progressivist, what today we call uh, fundamentalist progressivism or uh, woke uh, ideology. And Margaret Sanger was right in the middle of it. She was a part of the radical labor movement. Uh, she was a, a very committed communist Marxist. Uh, she began uh, to be influenced by the ideas of, of social Marxism, Antonio Gramsci, uh, Roger Baldwin, the founder of the ACLU, was a friend. Uh, Emma Goldman, the radical anarchist, was a mentor. Uh, John Reed was a lover, the, the guy who went to Russia and documented the Russian Revolution. So uh, yeah, Will and Ariel Durant were friends, great historians, Marxist historians. So uh, I thought, man, this is a motherload. And Margaret Sanger seemed to have this brilliant idea that the way to usher in the revolution was not barricades in the streets, right. but instead the transformation of the way we think about families and to children. So, and so that, that gave birth to the, to my whole interest. So you, you were mentioning some of just uh, the context of Margaret Sanger. Can you, in terms of her friends, where you were just mentioning, can you give us a little more? What was, uh, what were her years and sort of what was going on then? Did, the, did those exterior events have anything to do with where she was or what she ended up doing? Yes. In, in the years just before World War I, okay. uh, she was a very young activist, uh, heavily influenced in New York City uh, by uh, several salons, uh, the, these uh, gatherings of very wealthy, oftentimes very prominent people to talk about radical ideas, the sort of thing that you would expect. It's, it's like a scene from a Tom Wolfe uh, book. <laughs> uh, and uh, she was very much a part of that. She was a part of Mabel Dodge's salon, uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay, uh, John Reed, who I've mentioned, uh, Will and Ariel Durant, uh, Roger Baldwin, they were all part of these gatherings where they would talk and strategize. And then they would have guest speakers come from time to time, people like Bill Haywood, who was the founder of the, the, what was uh, commonly called the Wobblies. It was the International Workers uh, of the World or uh, Industrial Workers of the World, uh, a kind of a Marxist labor movement uh, about the same time that the AFL and the CIO were, were coming together, but much more radical. And Sanger was, was convinced that uh, civilization needed to be reinvented, uh, that Western civilization was off the rails, that Christianity had uh, stolen people's freedoms, 
that it was antiquated. And so she was a part of the whole revolutionary movement. But she had this notion that perhaps sexuality, um, gender, uh, families, uh, children, that that was the way, the wedge uh, to uh, sort of bring about a revolution without having to rely on politics uh, or uh, revolutionary tactics in the streets. She thought that Marx had it wrong and that Gramsci actually had it right. Change the culture and you'll win the politics. If you try and win the politics, you won't change the culture. So it was kind of the robes strategy of Antonio Gramsci capture the robes of academia, the robes of, of, of research, the robes of the judiciary, the robes of uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the powerful elites. And eventually, over time, you'll win the culture. So that, that was the journey that she went on. It was jump-started uh, when uh, she was arrested for uh, propagating indecent materials. Uh, she uh, wanted to open a, a birth control clinic, was, uh, was very, very rudimentary in the poorest section of Brooklyn. And uh, she was arrested for distributing indecent materials. And uh, she eventually fled from justice to Great Britain where she wound up coming under the influence of people like Havelock Ellis uh, and uh, George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells, that whole circle. Uh, when she came back, she founded a eugenics uh, organization uh, based on the ideas of, uh, of Havelock Ellis, who had uh, imbibed radical Darwinian ideas from Francis Galton, a, a cousin of, uh, of Charles Darwin's, who came up with this idea of uh, racial purity, uh, eugenics, and uh, began to uh, attempt to uh, propagate those ideas among the elites. And the elites just gobbled it up. Uh, essentially, what uh, eugenics is, is a kind of of scientific racism or neo-scientific racism or pseudo-scientific racism. Uh, it essentially argued that, um, that scientists could control the direction of evolution by limiting the gene pool of reproduction to only the elites. So you've got to get rid of the bad parts of the gene pool in the human race and you need to uh, encourage the propagation of the good parts. Well, it just so happened that this was exactly the sort of thing that uh, young Adolf Hitler was starting to, to advocate. And so there was this uh, convergence of radical ideas between Germany and uh, the eugenicists in the United States. Sanger hosted a huge international eugenics forum and conference in New York City uh, in 1922 that attracted a number of the people that would establish the Frankfurt School uh, in uh, Germany, including Dr. Ernst Rudin, who became Hitler's uh, director of the euthanasia program, 
uh, men like uh, Lothrop Stoddard, who was the author of the book, uh, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. Eventually, many major universities established chairs of eugenics studies. Um, universities like Harvard and Princeton and Stanford all had eugenics chairs. Uh, and 35 states eventually had eugenics laws that limited uh, reproduction or forced hysterectomies on uh, supposed unfit mothers. And uh, so that was really the beginning of what uh, Sanger called the Birth Control League of America, which eventually became Planned Parenthood. So uh, that's, that's a long sorted story, no, but that's that is the story. That's good. So would you say in so many words, what did Margaret Sanger accomplish in particular? Well, with the establishment of Planned Parenthood, she established the world's largest and most profitable nonprofit organization uh, and uh, the number one provider of abortions uh, of uh, radical uh, uh, sex education materials uh, and uh, eventually a research into fetal tissue, the harvesting of fetal tissue for uh, profit and uh, the beginnings of a kind of racialized, um, hierarchical, uh, social, cultural system imposed on the United States, supported by tax dollars. So rather than it, it wasn't necessarily her in the lab with the birth control pill or her coming up with uh, sort of abortive techniques, she was sort of just the engine, the indirect engine for all of it. Right. She was not a scientist. Uh, she wasn't even a nurse. Uh, oftentimes when people talk about <laughs> yes. Margaret Sager, they say that she was a nurse. She actually failed and then dropped out of nursing school. Uh, so she wasn't a nurse. She wasn't a scientist. She married into wealth. Uh, her first husband, Bill Sanger, uh, was a wealthy architect. Uh, he helped to design uh, Grand Central Station, for instance. Uh, and uh, then later, she married the uh, founder of the 3M Corporation, and she used her wealth and her connections with celebrities to create this, the, this great cause. She was a revolutionary firebrand. She knew nothing about science. You, you mentioned in your book that uh, she leaned on, sort of especially in her rhetoric, she leaned on her nursing background. And I, one of the things I did this morning was watch a, there's an interview with C-SPAN that she did with Mike Wallace, I believe. Yes. And, yes. and one of the first things she said was. Oh, she loved it. He's there smoking the, yes. the whole time. Yes. And she <laughs> says, you know, uh, basically the, her fundamental motivation was to end suffering is how she described right. it. And as someone who has spent hours in the nurse and, you know, in nursing corridors that, that she saw suffering and that was her motivation. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, that's that's oftentimes what we hear from people. It's uh, the, the, these radical ideas are imposed to end violence or to end suffering or to end poverty. But the way to end poverty is to feed people, not kill them. The way to end suffering is to help people. Uh, not maim them. Uh, the way to end violence is not to neuter your children and 
throw them into the, a lifelong tailspin of identity crises. It, it's to come alongside them and mentor them. Uh, so the, the, the rhetoric always rings hollow with these radicals. It's, um, it's come join the revolution to set the people free. And if you don't set the people free, we will destroy you. Right. Right. It, it seems interesting, too, that it went so quickly from uh, there's a pain point for women, as in I have law school on the way. A baby could stop that to very quickly uh, folks in, in sort of the in a, in a lab with a lab coat and wondering how do we manipulate this to get exactly what we want every time. That, that right. latter part seems to have fallen out of vogue to some degree, even though it's still charging on no problem. Uh, but it, it's interesting that it went so quickly there and then it seems to have, you know, for PR reasons, Planned Parenthood doesn't often talk about uh, racial purity or anything like that. They don't talk about it. In fact, they run from it. Uh, but uh, it's an inescapable fact that uh, 92% of all Planned Parenthood centers uh, are in impoverished, uh, oftentimes radically racially diverse neighborhoods, uh, and th that uh, the more than 68% of their abortion procedures are done on minority women. Right. You mentioned, you mentioned in the biography one thing that I thought was interesting is that she was largely uh, a discontent uh, person in the sense that it took her a while to find something she loved to do or loved doing. I think you mentioned, you know, she was just always sort of bored and her first husband really sort of catered to that, um, trying to figure out what's, what, what can you do that you love doing or something to that effect. What, what was it about this, this movement that got her so in, you know, like I would have imagined uh, just, you know, in terms of a character study, like it wouldn't have been long before even eugenics wasn't interesting to her, but she really like sunk her teeth into this topic. Why? You know, it's an interesting psychological profile that we can look at um, across the board of revolutionaries. Almost all of them were incredibly miserable people. <laughs> the story of Karl Marx is right. a story of misery. Uh, right. The story of Roger Baldwin is a story of sadness and misery. Rousseau. Uh, they, they, these are people, you know, Paul Johnson's uh, book, yes. Intellectuals, uh, profiles from, from Rousseau uh, to Nietzsche uh, to uh, Sartre. I mean, these, these were all incredibly unhappy people. Uh, and so they tried to find, uh, as oftentimes people do, they tried to find meaning and purpose in life in some cause. And that's what Margaret Sanger found. She found a cause. Um, but I always have to caution, it wasn't a pure cause. Uh, the other thing that we have to realize is that there's always money involved. Uh, when uh, Rousseau was a young man, uh, he wrote a number of essays on uh, all sides of the political spectrum. It was like he was shopping around for an ideology that would pay. He found it and he launched into this uh, sort of radical direction. Uh, we see the same thing with Wagner uh, and his attachment to, uh, uh, to the radical ideas of revolution. We see the same thing with Beethoven. 
Uh, he bounces from Napoleon to uh, uh, to the cause of of uh, you know the the anti-Napoleon forces of the Prussians. Uh, so it's it's a pattern that we see over and over and over again among radical revolutionaries. I often uh, like to describe it as why is it that these radicals and, and revolutionaries seem to accomplish so much, and the answer is. They don't have anything else in their life. You're saying like they don't have to drop the kids at soccer. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, uh, Rousseau killed all of his children. Right. uh, Or or abandoned them. Uh, You know, Karl Marx, he was uh, he was an absentee father. Uh, as he drank and as he squandered and as he philandered his his life away. Uh, If you've got a life, a job, a family, a neighborhood, friends, you know, it's hard to become a full-time radical activist. (laughs) Right, right. I've always thought that uh, the... Even you see radicals that sort of come up short, and I, I almost thought like maybe it's an orphanage that will have to raise the truest radical that essentially just has no love of father, no love of mother, no you know no generations behind them to sort of give you the pure radical. Um, I mean, think about every James Bond psychopath, <laughs> uh, you know, who rules the world. They're yeah. all people with horrible childhoods they're yeah. all along they've got nothing but vast wealth yeah. and malevolent ambitions luckily for us batman you know came out on the right side because <laughs> with all the time and money in the world he has um I, I one of the last last question i'll ask is uh there was a clip you got you you had the opportunity to deliver the news of of roe v wade being struck down at the uh, uh accs conference in frisco texas is is was that something you ever thought you would announce to a body of people while you were alive? Hmm. You know, that's a great question. I, I uh, I've always my entire adult life I've worked toward that moment. And uh, let let me just hasten to add, we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, the Dobbs decision is not exactly a sterling representation of pro life you know, aspiration. Sure, sure. It simply struck down a really, really bad decision. Uh, but it left in place a Bergefeld and, uh, you know, a whole lot of other things. Uh, and so it's not exactly the, this wondrous piece of, of legal work. Right. But it struck down Roe. And, you know, I've worked for this all my life. I, I never really imagined what it might be like to announce it. And I can't imagine any other place or way that it would have had more emotional impact uh, for me besides maybe being able to announce it on a Sunday morning at our church. Sure. But, um, and they don't release Supreme Court decisions on Sundays. And so <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So this so was it. it. It was incredibly emotional. You know, I was backstage with Carl Truman and Vody Bakum, and uh, when we were able to confirm that the news were true, we were hugging and dancing, and there were tears. Guy <laughs> Fisher was there. He was, tr- you know, crying. Um, so when, you know, and I was due up on the platform in uh, about two minutes. So I went up on the platform, and just uh, on the spur of the moment, I just turned to Bill 
uh, Sussman and I said, we, we've got to announce this. And he said, absolutely. And so we did. That's awesome. And it was, it was pretty incredible. That's awesome. Pretty incredible. Awesome. Well, uh, George, thank you so much for giving us your time. Uh, we should mention that your books will be slowly uh, included. We're going to start rolling your books out uh, in the next uh, couple of months. But we wanted to start with Killer Angel and what better time than now. I assume uh, you have to be seeing, you know, some results for that kind of thing, uh, for, for given the context. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I, I have done tons of interviews. And for the first time in a long time, I'm able to say to people, there's an audio version and, uh, yeah. and, and you get it in print and go to Canada. <laughs> awesome. So it's been great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, George. We appreciate you. God bless, Jake.